0: Dr. Dale on quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. We look to the skies for this month's episode to learn how quail react when pursued by a hawk. With Dr. Dale today is Tyler Sladen of New Mexico. Tyler is a serious falconer who specializes in hunting quail. His experiences and research help us with decisions on the ground to improve cover for quail. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest.
1: Well, hello Gary and happy new year to y'all and all of our listeners today. uh, Starting off a new year, 2024 and uh, starting off with a bang. I think, I think you're going to really enjoy today's podcast. I know that I've enjoyed spending uh, some time up here with our speaker and some of his colleagues as we uh, talk about falcons and quail and normally when i do a podcast like if i know i'm going to do a podcast with joe blow i'll uh, precede that about two weeks ahead of time and i'll develop a list of talking points just a little outline i'll send that to joe and ask him to uh, study it and if he has any questions or whatever we'll have a draft or two of that but today's podcast is what i would call a target of opportunity i didn't realize uh, as late as yesterday. That are going to be recording a podcast on on hawks and quail, and so sometimes it, it just varies from the typical routine. It'll be a spontaneous discussion. Uh, our audio quality, we're on site at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch up in Fisher County, and our audio quality may waver a little bit. So I would, uh, if it does, I I beg your patience relative to that. Let me take you to a bobwhite brigade or a quail appreciation day, two programs that I've been doing for over 30 years. And if we were talking about bobwhites, which we would be, we would have a necropsy. You would be looking at a quail and we're going to post that bird and talk about its anatomy and physiology and so forth. And I would proceed that discussion by saying this every single minute, every moment of a quail's life is dictated by the threat of predation. That doesn't mean that we kill all predators. It just needs to be means that we need to be cognizant. We need to appreciate the role that predation has played in shaping that bird. It's shaped their anatomy. it's shaped their physiology, their behavior. And in fact, many of the traits that we love about bobwhite quail, for example, cubby rises are a function of predation. And so we, we got to appreciate judge without an awareness the the role that predation has played and uh, predation does not get any more uh, refined than uh, when we're talking about hawks and quail quail suffer a lot of enemies. suffer from a lot of enemies but about between 30 and 40 percent of our annual mortality on quail here in rolling plains is a result of predation by raptors and especially as we get into about mid-october through the end of april so when we have those wintering residents like uh, Northern Harriers, Cooper's Hawks, those are some of the more quail threat raptors and uh, again we we don't want to ignore them and and exclude them from our management ideas. Quail are are paranoid birds I think you can all appreciate they don't just strut around out in the open like an ostrich does they are very secretive they're doing this tick tick call So they're a very nervous bird because they're at the bottom of the food chain. As Woody Allen used to say, you'd be paranoid too if someone was out to get you. And so with that as a backdrop, we're gonna talk about uh, falconry today. And our, our guest today is Tyler Sladen. So Tyler, give us your uh, background and, and, and how you wound up on the
2: Rolling Plains Quail Research today. So for the last several years, I've been supplying the bull research lab with data points on where my falconry birds chase quail from and to, and then where they go on the second flush and the propensity that they are to to go to ground. And then after a few years of that and a few other falconers contributing to that, we we were all invited out here to come chase quail here on the ranch um, and basically do what we've been doing. Uh, Myself, Nathan Danforth, Brian Wood, and Steve Warby are all out here with our falconry birds and all of our dogs chasing quail on the ranch. seeing where the quail here fly from and to and what choices they make when a hawk is inches from catching them.
1: And as quail hunters, uh, again, I'll reiterate this several times, but if you ever have the opportunity to spend a day afield with a falconer hunting quail, take advantage of it. Uh, You're all eyes and ears and uh, trying to look at the world through the eyes of a quail as it's being pursued by a raptor and it will change your opinion on how we're managing property and some things that we might do. Again, uh, Tyler and I, we may vary a little bit about our objective today because I'm here to say how can we foil the predator's uh, ability to catch quail. So I'm always looking at things like escape behavior. Obviously, he's flying the hawks and and wants to reward those hawks. Uh, So uh, we both have a common interest in, uh, again, how quail are responding to that threat of a raptor. And shout out, you mentioned uh, the Bowl Research Lab, Clint Bowl, Dr. Bowl up at Texas Tech and uh, shout out to him and I've worked with Clint on several other projects. Uh, One about 2011, a young lady named Becky Perkins did her master's degree and we dealt with a goshawk named Vinnie the goshawk and we were curious to see how quail responded to various threats. Uh, Raptors, a a guy with a carrying shotgun shooting up in the air twice, a nocturnal predator like a coyote. And it was really one of the most intriguing projects we've done here at the research range. And again, I learned a lot from it and I've learned a lot this week too. So to help refine my uh, ideas relative to escape covers. So stay tuned. I think you're really going to enjoy today's uh, focus on raptors and quail. Tyler, uh, let's talk just a little bit about the history of falconry. Tell me about where did falconry originate, the sport of falconry, I guess, and uh, uh, where, did, where, did we, uh, where did we get to relative to uh, our background as far as the uh, history of falconry,
2: falconry? So where falconry started is, is debated. It predates writing. Um, whether or not it started in the Middle East or Eastern Asia, um, is is debated it's not real definitive but some think it started in the middle east chasing desert hare with sacred falcons and uh saluki and greyhound type dogs and then others think it started in eastern asia chasing pheasant um with goshawks and other things um, the goshawk was often called the chef's hawk for many many years because it caught everything that they put in front of it um but falconry is much older than firearms it is it it It's as old as domestic pigeons. It's as old as cave paintings is when they've first seen depictions of falconry, and that's something that's cool that we're still practicing and involving the sport even today. Um, There's even dog breeds that have developed around falconry like beast and monster landers.
1: And we're going to talk about that uh, dog-hawk relationship today, that variable, because, again, it's... uh as quail hunters, we, most of us appreciate the uh, the relationship that we have with our dogs. But now we're putting in another variable in there with the with the handler, the dog, and the hawk. So that's an interesting triangle right there. Um, tell us who you brought with you this week, Tyler.
2: Um, me personally, or the, uh, the
1: the your colleagues that are out here today.
2: Uh, Nathan Danforth, he flies a Finnish Goshawk over over Britneys in Arizona on quail. Um, hit Scaly's gambles. His love is Merns. Brian Wood, he flies a a Cooper's hawk on quail, mostly gambles, but his love is also Merns. He flies over a setter and a Viesla. Uh Steve Warby, he flies a North American Goshawk um, on gambles quail mostly, and he has a setter. Um, I've got a lot of dogs, I'm mostly setters, um, married into a woman who raises short hairs, so I have those as well, um, and then I've also got a little yag terrier that's kind of everyone's little favorite mascot when they see me, um, and let's And talk. I've got a goshawk um, of the Russian subspecies, so from the Ural Mountains of Russia.
1: Okay, let's talk about that that little dog you brought with you because he seems to be the, the uh, the ringleader in, in many respects out here. Talk about him.
2: Oh, Mouse. her. She's a she's a yak terrier. Um, she I use her like you would use a cocker. She she sits and honors point dogs and goes in and flushes and uh, she's just my little buddy. But um, if there's a coon to catch, she's gonna catch it. And if there's a pig to bark at, she's gonna go bay it up. Um, she's just a little do everything dog, but she loves loves running scaled quail when she gets a running covey of scaled quail she'll bark at them like they're a rabbit and (laughs) get that covey flying (laughs) well it's uh
1: of course we we all appreciate the the variety of dogs and the the personalities and temperaments of our bird dogs but uh, i can tell that y'all have a very fairly eclectic string of of bird dogs and uh, again it was a pleasure to watch y'all and your dogs work this week um what brings you out here at the research ranch? Again, we don't mention Dr. Bowl, but uh, kind of what are we trying to study with this new project out here?
2: There, there was some various data points he wanted to collect. He wanted more escape cover data points, but he also wanted to see if our hawks were picking out the quail that had eyeworms worms on covey rises and catching those birds, or if they were just if there was anything more to the selection process of which bird does a hawk pick out of the cubby rise, um, also the effects of sequel worms on quail and other other things.
1: Most of the listeners of this podcast are aware of the the focus, uh, no pun intended, that we've put on parasites over the last 10 years, eye worms and sequel worms. And so trying to document, whether or how much a certain load of eye worms or seagull worms predisposes quail to higher levels of predation. That's a tall order. And so it's what I would be calling an in vivo test of predation and parasitism. And so, again, once these birds, uh, and I think they've taken about 10 at this point during the week, those birds are uh, dissected, uh, postmortem done on those, Count the eye worms, count it, and so forth, and then we'll be comparing those numbers with quail that we take during our trapping program uh, starting next week as more or less a random sample, and see if there's any difference between the birds that we pull out of a quail trap versus the birds that that hawk selected on a covey rise kind of thing. So it's a it's a tall order, but it's one that uh, is is really fascinating to be involved with, and we'll talk more about that as we as we go on,
2: Tyler. How many people, how many falconers are there in the U.S.? There's about 4,400 permitted falconers in the whole uh, United States.
1: And how many of those, and i got to make a distinction here, how many of them hunt quail? And I'm not just saying as a target of opportunity, but they go out with the goal of we're going quail hunting with our hawks today.
2: There's there's less than 10, and I'd say about half of them are here right now. Um, There's just a few that aren't here. And it, it becomes an even lesser number if those doing it over bird dogs.
1: And again, it's we've, we've appreciated having you all out here at the research ranch. And again, the opportunity for all of us to learn about uh, cover selection. And uh, again, as a land manager, I want to know where those quail are going and can I cut and paste those types of refugia across the landscape? Because my goal is to minimize, mitigate the impact of predation by raptors on quail. Uh, you mentioned various birds, uh, various types of hawks that y'all use. So give us a rundown, kind of give us a, a menu of uh, you know, what are the most popular breeds, or what are the most popular species of hawks that are used in, in today's falconry?
2: Uh, the most popular three would be, um, the number one would be red-tailed hawk. It's what everyone starts with. It's the most versatile, bird of choice for falconers.
0: Um,
2: most falconers are hunting either cottontail rabbits or gray squirrels. So, I mean, the, the availability of prey kind of dictates which birds you fly, followed closely with Harris hawks. Um, and then the number one falcon would probably be peregrines. Um, and those falconers are chasing ducks primarily. There's a few that chase chickens, sharptail and sage grouse, but the overwhelming majority are chasing, um, Ducks and some are even chasing doves.
1: How did you get started in this sport?
2: Um, I was stationed at Fort Hood in Texas. Um, I saw a flyer for a falconry meet over in Waco, and uh, I was like, "Wow, that that sounds cool. I want to just." I've always been a photographer. I just wanted to go take pictures. And granted, I've always hunted as well. And I went and watched, and they were flying Harris hawks on uh, on squirrels with the tree dogs and the hawks and the dogs were working in tandem and even the humans played an equal role in keeping these squirrels moving through the trees and it was just it was a party it was non-stop like action and chaos and there, you were involved in this not only a predator prey relationship but a predator relationship where they are working in tandem with a dog and a human to catch To all have one common goal and um Immediately, I was like, I need to do this. I bought every book I could. I, I spent all my free time from the Army, which was very little, um, driving to go hunt with other falconers that were in Texas. And then when I got out of the Army, I, I got my permit and started hunting birds. Um, I got my start flying red tails over terriers and dachshunds on squirrels. Um, and then I trapped a Harris hawk in Arizona, that had quail in one of his castings when I trapped him. So I knew he already had been catching quail before me. So I linked up with a falconer in Missouri that was also an expert at hunting quail. And I caught some quail with him and, uh, I fell in love. The, it was a dog hawk relationship, but it was a different one. The cubby rise with a hawk and a dog. It was, I still feel the same way walking into a cubby rise years later. And, uh, I, I ended up hunting quail with that person a lot over the years. His name's Michael McDermott. He he kind of wrote the book on it, and it's, it's had a resurgence in popularity. Um, but there's no looking back now. It's all I want to do. Every year there's no question of what I, I just want to keep catching different species of upland birds with my bird dogs and my hawk.
1: Well, you told me that you've had pretty good success as far as the variety of game birds that you've caught, so uh, give us a list of... Uh What's on your? What's been on your, uh, your, your uh, list of achievements
2: relative to game birds? Um, so I've caught five of the six quail species in the United States um, with a hawk. I have not caught mountain quail. they they still, they're still in my sights. Um, I've caught huns, um, woodcock, snipe. I've caught um, pheasant. Um, I really want to get the current bird I have back up to Montana and catch some sharptail, and I'd love to give them a chance at some prairie chickens. Um, I've had the chance to gun hunt every bird in the lower 48, but I, I, I have not caught all of them with my hawk, and I don't think I'll stop until I do.
1: Well, it sounds like you're making progress on that go. Out of those various birds, game birds that you talked about, which do you find is the most challenging with hunting
2: with a hawk? Um. Prairie grouse, any of the prairie grouse, sharptails and chickens, they're a lot faster than people think. And as as every month goes by in the hunting season, they just get more and more savvy and their hive mind becomes bigger as they group up into their wintering flocks. Um, As far as the hardest quail, obviously mountain quail are going to be the hardest for a hawk just because of where they live. But I find um, all quail, to be uniquely challenging in their own ways. If you remove mountain quail from the equation, I don't think, I don't really think any quail species is easier than the other. It's just terrain dependent. Um, Quail hunting with a hawk is 50% skill and 50% luck. Sometimes quail just make a mistake and the hawks capitalize on it. And we're gonna talk more about some of those
1: behaviors that a quail uh, demonstrates in the presence of a hawk. A little letter I want to back up just a little bit I, I overlooked something and I was surprised to hear about it. and hunting squirrels with Hawks I mean I, that wasn't on my radar screen but you said that originated in Texas
2: it, it I don't know if it originated but it was definitely the, the the man that kind of wrote the book on it he's uh, Gary Brewer he's over in Tyler Texas and now they have an annual squirrel hunting meet with Hawks over there that gets bigger and bigger every year put on by a woman by the name of Britt Perry who's also a biologist Um it is it is largely popular and it's, it is it's very easily a spectator sport too because, every, the more sets eyes to keep an eye on that squirrel the more chances that hawk has and help and it's it's a blast if you can get out squirrel hunting with a hawk and a falconer it's, it's my favorite thing that is not quail hawking like if I had to pick something else that would be what be what I'd do
1: now when you say squirrel hunting is that fox squirrels or gray squirrels or both or
2: what it's primarily gray squirrels that you do i mean people do hunt fox squirrels where they have them um and then there's a lot of that overlap where gray squirrels overlap with fox squirrels however they don't really chase red squirrels pine squirrels abert squirrels there's a few falconers that have caught aberts and uh the red squirrels have been caught but i don't know anyone that goes out and leaves their house saying i'm gonna go catch a red squirrel today but Gray squirrels is kind of everyone's main target. And I
1: don't know how many of you have hunted gray squirrels, but and I've only done it once or twice, but
2: uh, they are a challenge.
1: I mean, those rascals never stop, and if you're hunting with a 22 uh, you got to be pretty quick. And uh, so I'm sure I'm sure it would be a, a great sport to watch, to observe, uh, watching those hawks. And uh, someone was showing some video of basically how that, I forget what kind of hawk maybe red tail was just basically circling that tree. No, uh,
2: that was a goshawk. goshawk that was okay. Casey Everett with a goshawk. Well, that was
1: pretty cool and uh, again we can all appreciate the agility of these birds and especially the, and the sensory
2: mechanisms they have to do that. Squirrels uh, It was impressive. They definitely squirrels definitely have a lot in common with quail when it comes to a falconry sense is you get a good flush on either and they're going to try to go past a lot of what you would perceive as good cover to find a hole. They, they they know where those holes are in the woods. They'll run past the best trees in the world, and they're going to a specific tree with a hole. Um, and that's where most squirrel chases end if they don't get caught.
0: And we're going to talk
1: more about that because that's one of the greatest take-home lessons for quail managers is those uh, storm shelters, as we'll call them later on. Okay, well, you talked about how you got started. If somebody uh, was... It was interested in saying, I don't think I might like to try that. How would one get
2: started in falconry? So there's a national organization which will help put you in touch with your state clubs. There's the North American Falconry Association. You'll hear it called NAFa, and um, they've got people that will answer your messages and put you in touch with your state club. Every state, pretty much in the lower 48, actually in Alaska, has has a club. Um, and the, most clubs have what's called an apprentice coordinator, and they'll They'll get you in the field or try to with someone, and they'll help you coordinate with your state to take your test and get your permit. And then once you have your permit, you kind of look, you want to find your sponsor. They're going to shadow you for two years and help you through the process of trapping and training your first bird, and then kind of oversee it all. Um, And then after you're done with that, and after you're catching wild game under their supervision, they kind of cut uh, cut the reins off and let you loose. Um, turn you out to pasture and go fly other birds, or keep flying red tails or kestrels if that's what you want. Um, but that's that's the the abridged version on how you get started. And my best advice is to go see a bunch of falconers fly. There's so many flavors of falconry, and you kind of you're not going to know what you want to do until you've seen it with your own eyes.
1: Um, it, it's impressive. It's impressive to me. I don't think I would have the uh the patience or the dedication to make this work because you're basically working with those Hawks. I mean, it's a full-time commitment, isn't it?
2: It's a, the more you fly them, the better they are, the more, and then however you get accustomed, if you're, if you've got a good pattern going to the level in which they fly at when you are flying them every day so that it it keeps you from taking breaks and skipping because you now are accustomed to a higher level bird. It's hard to go backwards um, but yeah, you're pretty much, if you want to fly occipiters on quail, um, you're pretty much married to that bird, but red tails and Harris hawks and even some falcons are a little bit more forgiven on how often you need to fly them and work with them. However, you are feeding them every day. And so you still have that relationship with any bird you choose to fly and hunt with.
0: And for
1: our listeners' sake, uh... Taxonomically, there's there's basically three groups. And correct me if I'm wrong, Tyler. But there's basically three groups of raptors that, that would be used in falconry. One are the falcons, the peregrine falcon, the prairie falcon, those kind of things. And again, you said largely for ducks. And then you've got the accipiters, which are the hawks that we're most concerned about relative to quail. And that's the Cooper's hawk, sharp shin. And again, y'all's surrogate for that is largely goshawks, which are kind of Cooper's Hawks on steroids. And then you've got, um, which one wanted to leave out, the Harriers, I guess, and, uh, which I call the A-10 warthogs in, in the analogy of military warplanes. And then you've got the bootios. Well, let me back up. I, I generally talk about various kinds of raptors relative to quail uh, in the framework of military warplanes. And so you've got the B-29 bootios, Those are the red-tailed hawks, uh, primarily, and uh, they're slow and lumbering. They'll catch every quail they can, but they're not designed to catch quail. Whereas if we move to the acipiters now, the Cooper's hawks
0: uh, and
1: the goshawks, those are F-16s. They were designed for air-to-air combat. And then uh, you've got the third class here in in West Texas, that'd be the Northern Harriers, or what some people call uh, marsh hawks. And those are the A-10 warthogs. And they're the ones that are flying low and slow and, harrying a back forth across the pasture so
0: recognizing
1: that there are various quail specific threats uh, in regards to uh, hawks Uh, and i don't hear anybody talking about the harriers y'all talk about the occipiters and the falcons but does anybody fly harriers or are they just no
2: i don't know any falconers that have ever successfully flown a harrier um in falconry it's it's you got it's broad wings so your beautyos, and then short wings occipiters and then we have our people that fly what we call long wings, falcons, and then there's also the group that fly eagles. There are falcons that do fly eagles, um, but obviously, yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna hunt upland birds with eagles.
1: Uh, let's let's talk just a moment about again. You, I've seen YouTube videos and so forth of uh, golden eagles, especially and some of the prey that they can take down with those, and it's pretty impressive.
2: So in Eastern Europe, they uh, they do target roe deer, which Sounds crazy to hunt a deer with an eagle, and it is, but those roe deer are 30, 40 pounds. They're not as big as, they're not, as, they're not taking down adult white whitetail. They're just, but they do go out, they have falconry meets in the Czech Republic where they go out and they'll take people out and they'll go hunt roe deer in fields.
1: And they're hunting foxes in some places, right? Yeah,
2: they'll bolt foxes to the eagle with terriers, and then fo- and foxhounds, and then they'll catch them with an eagle. And then in Mongolia, they ride horseback into the mountains and have people down below flushing foxes out of rock um, rock piles, and then the eagle will fly down and grab the fox. Uh,
1: again, the, the variety and the the diversity of the various types of falconry is is, is intriguing and. Uh, there's a niche for all of them, I guess. And again, we're we're, we're uh, uh, fortunate enough this week to be with half of the ones that hunt quail with raptors and bird dogs. So we're we're pleased to be able to, to look over their shoulder and learn with them. Um, I know there had to be certain permits that y'all have as far as being able to own a. Uh, a migratory bird like a raptor so tell us about what so permit. there's
2: a federal registry for the birds we have we like have to submit um to the feds where where our birds are did they did they escape did we release them did they die um, then there's breeding permits but then our permit comes from the state each state has a state falconry permit um, and that grants us the ability to have birds in our possession birds of prey And it also grants us access to special falconry hunting seasons. Um, Like archery has its own special season, falconry is just a different method of take. So we have our own seasons and bag limits, um, generally varying state to state, but uh, Texas is very friendly to falconers, New Mexico, Arizona, very friendly to falconers. Like New Mexico, I can hunt quail September 1st to March 1st. However, my bag limit is three with a hawk, no matter what. Even if gun season's open, I'm only allowed three with my hawk. I can catch three with my hawk and then pick up my shotgun and go shoot 12 more, but um, you're not allowed to, because we get access to quail in September and October and also late February, whereas gun hunters don't in New Mexico. uh, That's why our limits are reduced to three, because we just get a longer season, and our birds need that. Um, And however, to, to catch a daily limit with a with a hawk is a very, very tall order. Um, it, it's very seldomly had. Most days we're happy to have one. So,
1: And it impresses me that uh, you don't just take your hawk out any time of the year. You don't just take it at any time of the day. You guys are meticulous uh, in, in knowing when your bird is ready to hunt, I guess. And you, and you weigh the bird and you, yeah. you figure it So t- tell us about that a little bit.
2: So what you figure out and my my experience is primarily occipiters so with goshawks um, and most occipiters you figure out your burn rate which is how many grams of weight does my bird burn an hour my bird's usually about two and a half to three grams an hour so based on that if i weigh him at 10 o'clock at night the night before i know what time he'll be ready to hunt which is generally three o'clock so I generally hunt my bird three o'clock till dark and I'm walking back most days with a flashlight in the pitch black because if I've got a dog on point I'm going to go flush those quail and try again and try again and even on days where I say I'm only going to catch one and be done I I just if my dogs are doing it right I'm going to keep trying so yeah we're we're we control our birds through their weight and so once we learn our burn rate we can figure out when our birds are going to hunt best and and that number changes a lot: wind, um, crowds, terrain, um, how hot it is. All changes that our target number for our bird. And it, it's there's a lot of guesswork, but it's it's a lot of educated guesswork. So there's no there's no exact reasoning on what our birds fly at and why. It's we just kind of have to use the rule of averages and kind of figure it out.
1: Well, I can tell by by being around you
2: four guys this week that y'all are
1: real addicts. I mean, <laughs> you've got a real uh, addiction to to your birds and to the hunting quail with raptors and bird dogs. So, how many days a year do you spend chasing quail?
2: Uh, generally, I try to hunt 150 to 180 days a year with my hawk chasing quail. Wow! And what states? So just mainly Arizona, or are you? I live in New Mexico, but I do hunt a good bit of Arizona. I always I always find my way over to Texas. Texas is real good to veterans, so my hunt license is free over here. So um, I try to start my season, Montana, North Dakota, sharptail hunts. Um, but so this year, the bird I have now, he's caught five upland bird species in six states this year. So we've caught game in Kansas, Iowa, Montana, um, Texas. Uh, New Mexico and uh, uh, Nebraska. So.
1: Well, you guys have got quite a quite a, an impressive list of technologies that you carry with you too. So let's talk just a little bit about about that. I mean, you know, in the bird dog world, we have our uh, GPS collars and so forth, and that's been a paradigm shift for over the last fifteen years. But talk to us about some of the technology
2: that you use with your hawks. So we've got what's called a Marshall GPS. There's only two GPSs on the market, but the Marshall is the smallest. And what it does is it records our flight and we can change and set up the update rates to, it'll have an exact speed, elevation, um, distance from us. So as soon as my bird slips after a quail, I can look down at my phone and know, My bird flew 62 miles an hour, 1,600 feet after that quail. And it it gives me a lot more data on whether or not my bird's flying his best because I know what he's capable of. So if he's only flying 40 miles an hour after quail, he's either too (coughs) low in weight or he didn't get enough food the day before or he's just not trying that hard because he doesn't like what's in the field with him. Whereas if he's flying in the 60s, he wants it. He's going to make it happen. It's just a matter of doing it. Um, and then what we can do is we can save that flight and open it in google earth and watch it in 3d and i had pulled it up earlier for clinton he, he you could see where my bird went when he has a running cubby of quail he'll he'll pitch up and he'll hover 100 feet above that cubby and he's waiting for the dogs to come underneath him and bust that cubby and hit and he's got the advantage at that point he's 100 feet in the air and now there's a cubby of quail flying under him and he'll swoop down and try to grab one and it works sometimes and most time it doesn't work it's it's really hard for a hawk to pick out a bird on a covey rise. Um, it's so distracting. It's overwhelming. And no matter how many times I walk into a covey rise, I, I, I'd like to think I pick out a quail when I shoot. It's just, it's just, it's all instinctual. And it's it's a great uh, evolutionary tactic that quail have developed.
1: And again, that's one of the behaviors in quail that we appreciate as quail hunters is the covey rise. And it, it's, it's there again because natural selection and uh, the ability to, if you will, baffle, uh, baffle that hawk just a little bit. So the odds of an individual surviving are going to be better when there's 13 of you in the air as opposed to if you're flushing by yourself. So uh, one of the things, again, I mentioned Dr. Bowl and some work we'd done back in 2011 and 12. At that time, we were trying to do what I would call an in vivo test of radio handicapping. There's a thought among quail just kind of a running battle among quail biologists about if we put radio collars on quail are we predisposing them to higher rates of mortality especially via predation and so uh, various ways of looking at that but uh, the one that uh, Dr. Bowl came to us with us uh, in 2012 we would have a covey of quail out here let's say it had 12 birds in it half of them had radio collars on it so uh, Barrett Kennecke I shout out to Barrett. He's now a biologist of Texas Parks and Wildlife. But he would walk through with the Yagi antenna. beep, beep, beep. We know the cubby of quail is right here in front of us. And as we walk through, and, and Vinny's handler, Jimmy Walker, uh, would be have Vinny on his forearm there. And as those quail flushed, could Vinny, through whatever mechanism, could he detect and target a bird that had a radio collar Maybe they flew just a fraction slower. Maybe their wings were clicking on the antenna, whatever the case might be. And uh, we did not, uh, in that study, did, Vinny was not that successful. He only caught, I think, like three out of 38 attempts or something like that. But in some subsequent work, Dr. Bowles has done where uh, he would have uh, quail launchers in front of uh, a hawk. And when the birds were launched simultaneously, one bird had a radio transmitter, one did not. Uh, The bulk of the time, I want to say around 70% of the time, the the hawk did target the bird with the radio collar on it. So uh, some suggestion of radio handicapping relative to that. But again, that was what got me intrigued in this, was watching what types of cover those quails select when they've got a hawk on their butt. And I tell people that uh, a quail flying from a goshawk has more respect for their threat than than they are, are feared of you with a Benelli Super Black Eagle with an extended magazine uh, and probably for good reason those hawks again uh, have been shaped and uh, selected for millennia for their ability to catch prey like quail so again it's just a a really cool thing and, and again one of the most interesting things from a management standpoint is what is that endpoint where did quail go to get away from the hawks. And so at that time, uh, what became very apparent to me was that our taller prickly pear, what I'd call South Texas prickly pear, was an important refugia. Our large cat claw acacias were important and especially important because nearly all of those cat claw acacias have burrows underneath them, rat burrows and so forth. And those quail went underground 38% of the time to escape from Vinny. So with that as a backdrop, Tyler, kind of give us an idea of y'all have been ahead this week and had 15 or 20 chases on with your hawks. What type of cover selection are you seeing here on the research range? And then we'll talk more about what you're seeing in New Mexico or Arizona where y'all are also doing this at.
2: We're seeing a lot of uh, the quail that get targeted by the goshawk um, generally. At their first attempt is to fly through a tree, but keep flying, trying to break that eyesight. But if they, if they make it past that, they're, uh, they're generally flying to prickly pear, which generally has holes in it, uh, the Mormon tea, which generally has holes in it, or they fly to, uh, the sorghum alum, the, that real tall, thick grass. It's almost, it, it, it feels like you're walking through cattails, but it's not, um, they love going to that and what they do when they go to that and they've done it every time is the hawk's jumping up and down on top of the sorghum alum, trying to reflush that quail on his own. And the patches are big enough that they're able to walk out the back door and walk into tall grass nearby. And the hawk's sitting there jumping up and down, like he's in a bounce house and the quail's already left. He's gone. We watched him walk away, but we're just watching him, see if the hawk can figure it out and they, they, they can't. Um, almost just just the time i've been here i mean my hawk's caught four quail here and uh no he's caught yeah he's caught four quail in three days and i'd say he's catching one out of 12 chases and so that's a real low success rate compared to what i'm used to out in the desert Um, he's getting his butt whooped by the property here and uh, we even had one fly to a rock outcropping yesterday, and it went subterranean in the rocks. Um, so it's it's been really cool to see where they go here, and it makes you it makes me appreciate bobwhite more because I'm used to White out in the shinnery oak flats in eastern New Mexico where they don't have as many options. It's it, the, the our birds are a lot more successful out there on quail, whereas here they have they've got a lot of points of refuge and uh, they know where they are.
1: And I'm taking that as a compliment, uh, again, that uh, via our habitat management and via our brush sculpting and, again, appreciation for how various plants uh, benefit quail, that our habitat management is, uh, has been somewhat successful in terms of foiling of those raptors. And so, again, I, I do that. I, I You know, that's a mark on my wall, and I'm yeah. proud
2: of, I think, that. It's it, it, I mean, generally at home it's like one out of five, and here it's been like one out of 12 for my bird specifically. And this is this is a bird that's very seasoned. He's caught four species of quail this year, and he's caught over a dozen pheasants. And he, he's very good at what he's doing. He, I mean, maybe he's young, but he he's caught a lot of merns in the air, he's caught a lot of scalies in the air, he's caught a lot of gambles in the air, and he's only pulled one bobwhite this whole trip in the air. So it's,
1: and that it's, was kind of a awakening for me, again, watching Vinny the goshawk and these guys' hawks this week, is that uh, catching a, at least a Bob White on the wing, which, is, again, my paradigm was that that's where the – you know, they're uh, you, if you've ever been out of field and you've heard a quail screaming bloody murder, and then you look up and he's got a Cooper's hawk right on his butt, uh, that's the picture that I'd envision was them actually snatching the bird out of the air. But that doesn't happen
2: all that often, at least no, over here, does it? I'd say – If it does happen, it's usually after the covey rise and when you're hunting down singles. um, To pull a quail in the air off a covey rise is is a very special moment. And generally, in my experience, it's usually a juvenile bird. It's usually a bird of the year. Um, It's very, very rarely an adult bird. Adult birds, they got way more tricks up their sleeve and they know where their covers are.
1: That's, that's what I, gives credence to what I call the old rooster hypothesis. And that's a story for another day. But uh, I challenge you you folks, as you're quail hunting, have you ever been in that covey rise situation where there's two of you and the covey rise comes up, 13 birds and bang, 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 bang. You empty your over and under. And then just about the time you break open your gun, here's a late rising bird. And that's what I call the late rooster or the old rooster. And so I've got a number of data points where we, we intentionally hold back for that bird that flushes three or four seconds later and almost invariably, in fact, I am i can't think of an exception. It's always been an old bird and typically an old rooster. So uh, there has to be some experience and uh, survivability that accrues to, uh, to age and experience. Um, And then we were talking about some of the escape coverts, again, the prickly pear, the acacias, the burrows, uh, the pack rat middens. Now, we don't have that many here on the research range, but as you move west of here, you see a lot more pack rat middens. And I think those are pretty important for you all in Arizona and Mexico, right? over
2: the last four years, basically, what we found that if you flush a quail more than once, it's almost a 90% chance that it's going to a pack rat hole somewhere or a kangaroo rat or a rock squirrel, but it's the scaled quail, the gambles quail, and the bobway in New Mexico, it was, it was shy of hundred, almost 100% chance. If you flush that quail twice, it was going to a hole if it had one. The only quail that we have that I've never had go down a hole are the Murns quail. They will fly 400 yards and land between two pack rat holes but land in the grass. They just, they, Murns quail really trust their camouflage whereas Bob White, are, they're a little bit more uh, Viet esque and they, 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 they go subterranean.
1: And that, uh, we didn't, in our list of honey holes, or our list of storm shelters there, we didn't talk about grass. But again, one of the revelations that I've seen this week, and you mentioned the sorghum album. Sorghum album is often planted. Uh, it's a, typically just a two-year kind of a plant, unless you disturb it and you can kind of keep it going. Not that great on food production, but it's great cover. It's a it's a cousin of Johnson grass, and so you can you've all been around that. But those quail, and I want to talk to you about something that y'all alerted me to. You were on three coveys
2: of quail on about 40 acres, and tell us what happened. So it was three coveys of quail within 40 acres, but what? the quail that the hawk picked out of each of those coveys, and these were covey rises, all flew to the same patch of sorghum alum. So three singles off a covey rise of three different coveys all flew about 200 to 300 yards past a lot of good cover to some really good cover. And they they all got away. They all lived.
1: And that's, again, this patch of sorghum alum he's talking about is in a drainage in a a bottom. And it's, not over a quarter of an acre in size, kind of thing. So, again, this brings up the whole idea about uh, cover types, cover selection, escape cover. And escape cover, we've all said, well, quail need escape cover. But we've been fairly cavalier as far as quail ball, just about what we assign as, as escape cover. And again, it, you're going to get a whole new uh, appreciation of escape cover when you watch that quail escaping from a hawk. And what we perceived historically as, as escape cover ain't escape cover in the eyes of a quail. And again, they're going to pass over a lot of areas. Some some of these flats are 400, 500 yards, which is a long ways for a quail to be flying. And again, they got the afterburners on. They're six feet above the, the ground kind of thing. That hawk's right on their butt. And they'll go over a lot of country. And you mentioned this relative to the squirrels a while ago. They go over a lot of country that we said, well, that's a good spot to duck into. They don't duck into it. But then all of a sudden, they just zoom. They drop down. And uh, it's, it's one of several storm shelters. And, uh, again, we, we can have an appreciation. I was raised in southwestern Oklahoma in Tornado, tornado Alley. So I know all about storm shelters. And I know all about when those storm sirens ring, you got a limited amount of time to take cover, and that's kind of the way the quail are. So, Tyler, let me ask you, again, that quail, again, those three quail that you all were chasing and they all flew in the same little patch of cover, if we'd have come back out there in a week and you flush those birds again, do you think they'd have gone back to that same place?
2: Absolutely. Um, I, at home, there's – there's some fields near my house that if I'm running short on time, I, I hunt them a lot. They get hunted a lot. And generally, I only try to catch one quail and leave those cubbies alone. But I've hunt, I've been hunting those same coveys for seven years. I don't even have to look at my phone. I don't have to look at my receiver. If I see my bird fly a certain way on a quail's rear, I, I can already tell you which three holes those quail went to. I know exactly where. The, and they've been doing this for years. So this is generations of quail. I mean, um, so... They know and they, they, they must teach each other or something. And uh, I can tell you, if I see them fly to a certain juniper, I'm like, nope, there's some badger holes under that juniper and we're not getting that quail out, whether we had an excavator or not. It's They they know those holes, like the back of their hand. They're like little homing missiles and they fly to their respected hole. And that, again, as a quail manager, or just
1: student of quail, you, you really you stand, stand amazed that and again intergenerational transfer you know how did how did that rooster communicate that to the to the was there some leadership within that covey? i often say that there's a first lieutenant in the covey, and when a particular threat comes upon quail you'll hear that i don't know if that's the uh, embarking out the orders for the escape plan that's the way i speculate it as but just uh, Just the ability for those quail, and I'm going to give you another example. If we're trapping quail out here at the research range, when we trap 10 quail, we put them in zipper pillowcase. And so we take them into the lab and leg band them and weigh them and those kind of things. And then the next morning, we take them back to the same spot and we release them. Well, if we release those birds all at one time, of course, obviously they'd, they'd fly to the same general area. But if you take those birds out of that bag one bird at a time and release it, it's gonna fly from point A to point B. If you take the next one out, and he hasn't been able to see this, now again, maybe he's hearing, you know, he knows wing baits or whatever, but as soon as you pull that second bird out, he's gonna fly in exactly the same flight arc, and he's gonna land in the same end point over there, and they'll do that 10 times in a row with those birds you pull out. So somehow they are acutely aware of where their storm shelters are. And again, as quail managers, we need to recognize, appreciate, and hopefully be able to cut and paste those across the landscape. And so after watching these guys and the, and the, the sorghum almond situations out here, one of my goals at the research ranch is going to be to increase, to cut and paste, if you will, those sorghum almond pockets across the ranch. And we'll be focusing on some of our spreader dams. Some of those little areas where we've harvested rainwater, it'll be, make them more conducive to uh, plants like sorghum, Almond. Of and so, again, hopefully, uh, next time you come out here, I hope that you're even more frustrated by the fact because we built those storm shelters across the landscape kind of thing. Um, let talk about quail behavior. Oh, the, the covey rise and the safety in numbers. We talked about that Um I'm not sure why i had merlins here it's,
2: it's because uh quail respond differently to different okay. types of birds they once the bird is in the air that's pursuing them they uh they know they have different plans if uh, if an occipiter what i call a short wing goss cooper sharpshin, is chasing them they fly very different places than they would if a harris hawk was chasing them which is a broad wing um, and then if there's a falcon already in the air, and this isn't in response to them on the glove, it's in response to how they see the threat. If there's a falcon in the air putting a silhouette over that covey, they don't want to fly. They would rather run. They will run and run and run. They do not want to fly with a, a peregrine or a merlin or a prairie falcon in the air above them in close proximity. They they'd almost rather you step on them or a dog catch them. Well, and this applies to scaled quail, Gamble's quail.
1: And that's one of the lessons that, that we learned when we had Vinny the gossawk out here. Barrett has a size 13 shoe and as he was walking through, beep, 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 the quail are right here. I don't know why they're not flushing, but they're right here. Oops. He'd stepped on a quail. And I think Barrett wound up killing more quail by stepping on them than Vinny caught. But the point being, that the quail have an awareness of that threat. And again, they would rather face you with a Benelli shotgun than they would face that goshawk. And I heard Dr. Bold, as we were talking about that years ago, and Jimmy Walker uh, hunting with their prairie falcons and so forth, that when they, uh, when they got a prairie falcon above them there and they're hunting ducks on a farm pond, let's say, those ducks won't fly. They'll get out of the water and go into the grass and hide because they won't fly uh, knowing that that, hawk, that falcon is above them like that. So again, the the respect, if you will, that the, these birds have for their uh, raptor threats is, is really incredible and, and something to see. So another thing that I ask you all about, again, here at the Research Ranch, dealing with our radio marked birds, uh, the technicians, if they get a mortality signal on the radio, which is basically a, a regular signal, goes beep. 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 A mortality signal is twice the pulse rate. Beep. 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 And so if they hear that, well, then they move into what we, what I call CSI, well, CSI, crime scene investigation, and they become Quincy or Horatio Kane or whoever to try to look at the evidence at the kill site and make an educated guess, was this killed by a raptor? Was it killed by a mammal? Was it killed by a snake? Uh, what the various uh, cost specific mortalities might be. So, help me, uh, y- your bird's caught a hawk. How does that bird begin to dismember or disable that quail?
2: So, with an occipiter, um, falcons will reach in and bite the neck, but with an occipiter, they're just going to eat things until they die. But before they start to eat things, they do what's called plucking. and It's why I'm able to get all these quail this week away completely alive before I hand them off to dr bowl or someone um the first thing i've seen a goshawk do and this is all the goshawks i've had and this is all the quail i've caught is they pluck the wing feathers almost instantly they're gonna pull every wing feather off that wing and they'll do it in seconds Uh, and i i think it it kind of come they do that because if they that quail gets loose from their feet while they're trying to eat it they can't fly now they're gonna look like a boston market chicken running down the road um even yesterday i got my bird off of that quail within 15 seconds and it didn't have a single flight feather left hmm. i was just barely able to tell that i had caught a juvenile with those juvenile coverts on the wings um, and i was trying to get them off as fast as i could and i was right there when it was caught so uh, generally I, I see an dissipator bite each feather one by one and pull it off and flick it but they do it very fast like a little machine gun and eventually I, I joke and say my bird believes in the philosophy of no feather left behind he's going to pull every single feather off that quail before he starts eating
1: and that's one of the things again that's that's some of the physical evidence that we look for at the kill site to, to again make that decision was it killed by a mammal or a raptor or whatever and we look at uh little crimp marks in the feather shaft because that's where the bird has plucked those feathers out. So again, there's little clues, little forensic clues, if you will, that we can look at and uh, hopefully make an an honest assessment of what that uh, cause of mortality was. Um, Let's talk just really quickly about the interactions between the bird dog and the hawk. In other words, I wanted to bring my two dogs up here this week so they could get out, but Clint said they don't really want anybody's dogs but theirs because of the relationship that your dogs have with your
2: birds. And you never really know how it's going to go when you introduce a new bird dog to a hawk. Generally, if it's an older dog, an experienced dog that ignores sparrows, ignores crows, ravens, and other things, and just just, just a made bird dog. They get one sniff of that hawk and that hawk throws his hackles up and flares his wings They and they're smart enough they read the body language um, and then they just kind of ignore it they recognize real quick generally that a hawk is not prey um, some dogs are just so prey driven they don't care um, typically the german sort um, however most of my english setters over the years they recognize it real quick and they they just
0: all right, the hawk
2: got it first. They honor that and they, they, they treat it like they would if another dog was retrieving a bird. They just, all right, I'm just gonna go look for another cubby, bye. Um, my terrier, you, they, there's a lot stronger conversations I had to have with my terrier to kind of respect the hawk because terriers, they hunt anything. Mm-hmm. But bird dogs, they, I, they have shown me that hawks smell nothing like a game bird. Uh, most dogs get one whiff, even like a six-month-old setter. Takes a quick sniff and they're like, "eh, that's not that's not a quail. That's not why I'm here." So, um, it it's been cool to see. And uh, my vistla, however, he has made it his dying wish to um, help the hawk, no matter what. It, it's it's the hawk doesn't the hawk respects my vistla and he understands he's an important part. But my my Viesla is like that, that dog that wants to be his friend that is just allowed to tag along. If if my hawk chases a quail over the ridge, my beestle is eight feet behind him running as fast as he can. So, um, and he'll lay down on a kill right next to him and keep coyotes and bobcats and other birds. Um, we run the risk of prairie falcons coming in and robbing our birds of what they just caught, or red a lot of red tails try to steal the quail from our birds and. Uh, birds of prey are very big pirates. They they will pirate anyone else's kill and it's it's uh, the dogs definitely help mitigate that.
1: As a quail hunter,
2: bird dogs and quail in, in Oklahoma and Texas
1: for many, many years, there were two things that I noticed yesterday that I thought, hmm, you don't see this when you're hunting with these guys, falconers. One is blaze orange. I'm, I'm a big believer, of, I've got colleagues and Shotguns. I want all the blaze orange I can get. And the other one is, y'all were picking glockids, the little spines from the prickly pear. Y'all were picking those out of your hawk's feet last night. So. Yeah. He,
2: uh, he, the first slip yesterday, your eyes, picked a single out, flew it uh, 200 yards, and it went to that chest high prickly pear. I took one look at it, and I said to my buddy Steve, I was like, you got a better chance of curing cancer than getting that quail out of that prickly pear. We might as well leave. But my hawk doesn't believe us, and he was running back and forth on the, the prickly pear pears, and all those, those flockeds were getting in his feet. And if you leave them, they'll get, they'll get impacted and infected. And a hawk that has feet that are injured or has, has a foot injury, it's, I mean, they spend their entire life on their feet. I mean, they fly a lot, but they don't—they don't lay down on their back and sleep. They sleep standing up. So if their feet have an injury, it, it can balloon. And so we, we try to pull out every little bit we can. So, and the hawk takes it out on me. He acts like I'm hurting him when he's the one that decided to walk through cactus. So,
1: um. well, that whole idea of—and uh, you're you're talking to the the biggest uh, proponent for prickly pear. And a lot of uh, folks, a lot of dog owners, you know, and a lot of landowners, they get mad at prickly pear and wind up spraying it and whatever. And with the idea that uh, it's more huntable now because they don't have the prickly pear. My philosophy has always been, I want to err on the side of, of the quarry, of the quail. And if there's quail in there, those hunters will find a place, you know, they'll find a way to get after them.
2: But what are your,
1: what are your thoughts and attitudes about things like prickly pear?
2: Uh, I love it anywhere. I I love anyone that curses quail because it not only keeps predators out, and makes them hard to hunt the quail. It keeps other bird hunters out and it keeps other humans out. And, um I I have a healthy respect for prickly pear and cactus. By me it's a lot of cholla and most bird dog people by me won't even hunt a choya field. And uh, all I think is it's just more for me. Mm. Cool. I, I I my dogs will learn it. They'll figure it out and uh, generally where you have cactus especially in the desert states the dry states where you have cactus you have quail and it's a it's a good drought tool for quail um i've watched scaled i've spent many hours watching scaled quail and they'll jump up and kick the choya fruit off the choya. and it's where they're getting their water Mm so i love
1: cactus yeah we're we're brothers of cloth there um rest of you just gonna kind of have to indulge us on the prickly pear a little bit but i tell people that my dogs were raised in cactus from day one and they negotiate that cactus quite adeptly and incredibly but you take a dog from tennessee that's out here a pointer typically and uh, they go back to tennessee looking like a porcupine because it's got quills all, or spines
2: oh, on. oh yeah they're, when i'm my puppy when i'm raising a puppy 12 weeks old they're they're out there following me through cactus fields and I generally don't pull spines. I, uh, it was funny, the techs were reaching over and pulling spines on one of my young dogs and I said, leave that dog alone. She needs to learn to navigate the cactus and that there is consequences. Now, I mean, they get balled up real bad with sand spurs and choy. I'll help them out, but some prickly pear spines they can figure out on their own and they need to learn a My Gamora dog, she'll, you gotta watch her run that that carpet that carpet prickly pear. She looks like she's doing the the black swan ballet, running through that stuff. She, she every foot placement is deliberate. She's like a little mule going mm. through that.
1: Yeah, so. I've, I've seen that. Like I said, it's it's incredible. Now I will say there's one exception to that, and that's uh, the dog cactus. I think's what they call it, but it's it's a nasty, and it gets in your legs and so forth. That's a nasty one to be around. But regardless, have a respect for prickly pear. It does have some. Uh,
0: Benefits, many
1: benefits to quail. Let me ask you, Tyler, as a quail hunter with falcons, and again, you got to appreciate my perspective, we're trying to foil your success. So, what would you say from a management standpoint, if you want to again, trying to shift that odd to the quail and away from the hawk, what would be some things you'd think about?
2: Uh, More more pack rats, more oaky cut, like anything shrubby and the cat claws. Our hawks can't punch through that cat claw, especially when it's waist high. And the quail have, like, a subterranean highway they run in it. That stuff makes it real hard for hawks. And then the other thing is just a consistent just consistent grass height. If hawks can't see it, they can't catch it. So if, there, if there's a good bunch grass cover and it's, it's shin high, and, but it's got to be a good bunch grass with, like, a tunnel, so like, the ability for quail to walk through it, too, if a if, if hawk can't see them, they're not going to have a chance at them. And, and hawks will never miss an opportunity, especially when the quail are where it's like short grass and that carpet prickly pear. They love to take pop shots at them on the ground in that because they can see them running from um, You can talk to Dan. He, uh, we, we chased the quail into the, that rocky hill over here on the, on the north side of the property. And then when I was going to pick up my bird, he took off, he flew about a thousand feet. Wings tucked, didn't flap once, and took a shot at a quail running on the ground. And uh, they can see a long ways. And if it's bare dirt, it's, it's hard for quail. If there's, there's, especially when the quail are in the roads and stuff. So if there's not grass nearby or grass to cover their movement, it, it definitely makes it easier for a hawk and hawks can see a long way If you've ever, we fly helicopter counts,
1: we count quail from the helicopter, and we're flying low, about uh, 30 feet off the ground and about uh, 30 miles an hour. And so we're flying basically like a Harrier, a Marshock would do. And you think, my gosh, our quail are so vulnerable to this because they're very easy to see from a helicopter when the cover is light or we've had a drought kind of situation. So, again, it it really makes you... uh, Makes you cognizant of uh, the cover needs for escape cover, and again screening cover to avoid that to um, let that quail be less visible and hence less vulnerable to a quail. I want to back up one thing you talked about hunting burns quail, and you talked about topography as part of that equation and how a quail would. Uh, as I understand it, kind of go over a hill. and As soon as they did, they'd drop down
2: and the hawk would lose sight of them. Kind of thing. So I recently learned that the reason myrn's quail like those 45-degree slopes and those canyons is not just because they like that. That's just not their terrain choice. It's because of two reasons. The oaks that grow, they get the perfect amount of sunlight down in those bottoms to produce the most amount of acorns, which myrn's quail eat. But what they also do is when a hawk chases a Mern quail, the number one way I, I lose a Mern Squail and I do not catch a Mern quail with my hawk is they crest that hill with the hawk 20 yards, 20, or not 15 yards behind them. And as soon as they crest that hill, they dump and they've got grass everywhere. It's as good as gone. You're not finding that Mern quail again. You've got to go look for another cubby. And they use those hills just as a, a mask. That's, that's, their, that's their way to break eyesight on a hawk. And the Merns are very good at that. Myrns do not fly to holes. Myrns do not fly to pack rat nest. Merns rely completely on hills and good grass. So if, if merns don't have the grass or the hills and they're out in the open flats, they're, they're, at, a, they're at a huge disadvantage.
1: Well, we're coming to the end of the, of the podcast, the discussion. So, uh, again, as you contemplate your management, be cognizant of those storm shelters out there, the, the cat claws, the pack rat middens, Uh, various other ones that we've talked about, the sorghum almond patches, and be thinking about, number one, can you recognize those? Do you appreciate those? Do you judge them with heightened awareness? And then how do we preserve them? So, again, uh, being uh, mindful when it comes to brush control operations, uh, land management opportunities, and so forth, trying to change that equation from favoring the enemies of the quail to the in favor of the quail that's always a, a fulcrum that we need to be aware of is if i do x management practice did i favor the enemies of quail or did i favor the quail and as a student of quail you would hope that you're going to be favoring the quail my um my exhortation to you I mean, my homework assignment to you is again if you have the opportunity to spend a day afield field with a falconer take advantage of it and uh maybe i'll get you some
2: hunting invitations out
1: of this tyler i'd love that this, this <laughs>
2: trip has been a trip of a lifetime for us and i i love taking new hunters there are people i love taking lifetime hunters out to see them finally get to see quail behave in a way they've never seen before it's one of my favorite things and But this has been a trip where i'm the one asking nothing but questions because i'm surrounded by land managers and biologists here and it's it's been just like a. This has been my Disneyland.
1: Well, we've enjoyed having you this week. And uh, is there anything else that we've overlooked that you want to share with our audience?
2: I can't. I can't really think of too much. Um, I just. Um, I will say though that it's why I do appreciate prickly pear because in the drought years when the grass is bad that they'll always have that prickly pear, those prickly pear are there year to year and not just for water, but for cover. And it's, it's a cover that does not die and come back. It's, it's a cover that once it's gone, it's gone, but it's, there the good years and the bad years. And so, um, the quail will always have the refuge of good cactus, especially in dry states.
1: Well, again, um, knowing your plants and knowing how to manipulate them. That's the two rules that I say for plant succession and recognizing and appreciating what they do for quail. Uh, We're going to bring it to a close here. I want to remind y'all that I always refer to you as our eyes and ears as far as what's going on quail-wise on the Back 40. So please keep us in mind as you're afield. I've got several homework assignments for you. One is always be cognizant of any weird quail that you see. That could be skeletal anomalies or a cloudy eye or a, a gizzard that looks like pickle loaf. Always be mindful of those. Uh, if you see those, uh, contact me, drollins at quailresearch.org. Many times we'll ask that you put those in a Ziploc bag, put them in the refrigerator, not the freezer, and let us uh, send those down to the diagnostic lab for some uh, screening and, and so forth uh, as far as possible diseases. I want you to be mindful of the crop fat, the fat stores that a quail will have between its crop and its breast muscle right there. Uh, It's been a little alarming to me out here of the birds that they've taken this week again late November that we're not seeing any more fat on the birds than what we are. I mean these birds at this time of year and some of these in fact most of the quail are taken from our fed pastures uh, which which we'll go into later but they have access to milo And uh, we're not seeing the crop stores that I would think would be important uh, as we get that January blizzard coming on. So uh, as you're cleaning birds, if you see birds that either do or don't have crop fat, well, take a shot, take a photo of it and uh, send that to me. And be anxious for your reports. And then also be mindful of feather piles as you go hunting. If you're finding uh, more than one feather pile a day, and sometimes we've had a rash of those, that's a suggestion that something's going on out there. Whether it be disease, uh, inclement weather, or whatever. So I'm always anxious to hear about that. And then uh, lastly, again, I want to tell you, I want to remind you that our Quailmasters class for 2024 is now recruiting, and those will be open until about April 1. So if you have an interest in learning more about Quailmasters, go to our website, quillresearch.org, or uh, give me an email at drollins at org, and I get signed up for that. We hope to have a full class. 40 students of quail as we enter April for that. And with that, Gary, again, Happy New Year to y'all, and I look forward to seeing you again next month.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. What a very interesting conversation. Thank you, Tyler, for sharing your insights. We can all learn from your experiences and research as a falconer. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, Go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time.
2: Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.